0: greetings or salutations. You see what I did there? I said greetings or salutations because you always hear people say greetings and salutations, but well, they're the same thing. So I'm telling you, choose one or the other. But anyway, my name is Sean. I am the host of this podcast, episode 30 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And uh, what you know, something that I think I should do is periodically just kind of say what this podcast is all about because I can't assume that everybody has been listening to every episode. So for those of you who've never heard this podcast before, thank you for giving this one a try. And the reason that I'm doing this podcast is No Swear Gamer finished his Atari 7800 game by game podcast, but he didn't want to talk about the homebrews. He just wanted to keep it focused on the original sanctioned Atari 7800 cartridges that were out during the original lifespan of the 7800. Other podcasts do talk about homebrews, such as Ferg and the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, and Shinto on the Atari Jaguar Game by Game podcast. So I figured, you know what, these homebrews need some attention, and uh, usually when there's a discussion about favorite Atari 7800 games, most of my favorites are the homebrews, actually. So I figured they deserve some attention and hopefully maybe get some, uh... there's a little thing called the Ferg effect. And like I said before, Ferg is the host of the Atari 2600 game by game podcast. And the Ferg effect is this apparent pattern of when Ferg is getting ready to talk about a certain Atari 2600 game sales of that game, go up on eBay prices, go up a little bit. And I kind of would hope that this podcast does have the same effect on homebrewers basically 7,800 homebrewers have kind of a Ferg effect. I really hope that happens because let's face it, these folks deserve it. And uh, in case you can't hear that, uh, I live uh, on a really, really busy street, not far from a fire department and a uh, fire truck or ambulance or something just went by. So, uh, but anyway, what I do is give these homebrews some attention. I talk about them. I talk about the development history or as much as I can about the development history and uh, just to give you an idea of what people do to make these things happen. And it's just a really fascinating thing to me. And I just love that there's so much support for this great little system that didn't really have the hottest library of games. There are a lot of clunkers in the 7800 for such a small library. A lot of great ones, too. For example, whenever I hear about somebody getting an Atari 7800, I immediately tell them, go out and get Food Fight. If there isn't a store in your area that sells Atari 7800 games, go to eBay and get Food Fight. That's the first thing I tell people, Food Fight. I also tell them, check out the homebrews on Atari Age and Good Deal Games. That's basically the point of this podcast, just to get, get some attention out there about these homebrews and also to give the 7800 as complete a coverage in podcast form as possible. I'm kind of a completist in many ways, and that's this is one example. This podcast is an example of my completist-ism, I guess. But there you go. Just want to talk about some news. Um, I, in case you didn't know, I will be at Midwest Gaming Classic in downtown Milwaukee which I believe is the second weekend of April. I think it's like the weekend of April 14th. You know what? Hold on a sec. I can check. Yes, it's uh, the weekend of April 14th. I will be there Saturday and Sunday. I will be at the Pie Factory podcast table. That's the other podcast that I host uh, with uh, Jimmy G. We are going to have a table in fact, what they're talking about doing is having an entire podcast room. So that'll be something. I hope I always wondered why they didn't do that before. And Dan, who's one of the people in charge of the of the show, said, "Well, the reason I didn't do that before is I didn't never I didn't have room. but they have plenty of room now. It's gonna be huge. it's It's, it's at a freaking huge convention center downtown too. man i'm I'm really excited about that. I'm also excited because I ordered an Edladdin Super Twin. That's an Atari 7800 specific controller. It'll also work with a 2600 too, but it has two joysticks and two sets of fire buttons. And it was made with Robotron in mind, so I can't wait to try that out. And I can't wait to try it out with uh, Time Salvo as well, because that's another two joystick game. It's, this is going to be great. Lately, what I've been doing, I've been using my Edladdin. I'll play four eight controller and my uber arcade controller at the same time which works they're fine they both stay in place at the same time but i think the super twin will be much more conducive to playing those games i really can't wait for it i saw pictures of it when ed was putting it together they look amazing oh my goodness i so can't wait also recently i played a new arcade game called cosmotrons i mentioned it briefly in the last episode the developers of Cosmotrons, they were doing an arcade tour, and they hit up Underground Retrocade recently, and that's in West Dundee, Illinois. It's my favorite place to go play arcade games. And Cosmotrons is a behemoth multiplayer arcade cabinet that's kind of based on Gravatar, except it's a little bit harder. Well, maybe it's not a little bit harder. It's this behemoth multiplayer cabinet, and it's uh, a little bit vectorish. Like its It looks like a vector game, it's not really a vector game, but it looks like one, but it's amazing. It is, it's, it's just fun to play. It's gorgeous graphics. And what I really, really love is when something explodes, it's actually like a real mini explosion on the screen with actual fire graphics. That part isn't vector style. It's like raster style, I guess, but it's a really great hybrid that way. The sound on it is amazing. There's a great musical soundtrack to it. The uh, thumping bass is really, really cool in a way it's a multiplayer gravatar and your job is basically to thrust around refuel your tanks and of course destroy the other players and the last player to survive wins the round it is so much fun in multiplayer mode single player mode it's more of a i i see it as more of a practice kind of thing it's just a way to f- practice thrusting and refueling and shooting and things But the multiplayer mode of Cosmotrons, oh, wow, it is so much fun. I can't wait for that sucker to come out. In fact, they're going to be at uh, Midwest Gaming Classic as well, the Cosmotron guys. In fact, they're hoping to have the actual release version there. I think right now they're on version 0.57 as I record this, but uh, not 100% sure. And man, a couple of other things that have been happening that I really should note. Uh, Ted Dabney from Atari, the, one of the f- co-founders of Atari, he's not doing well, unfortunately. I think he's uh, got a terminal illness right now. It's really sad. That was some sad news. And of course, his, one of his business partners, Nolan Bushnell, of course, due to an, uh, some in an interview in which he admitted that a lot of, uh, well, um, stuff that I shouldn't talk about in this podcast because I want it to be family friendly happened and uh, it resulted in a uh, pioneer award being uh, revoked from him at least temporarily with all this uh, controversy going on in the country about uh, sexual harassment and stuff. They, I guess, they want to hold off on it. There have been several female employees from Atari who worked with. Nolan who came forward and said there was nothing that went on that was not consensual or anything. Yes, it was the seventies. Yes, there was some pretty uh, uh, crazy stuff happening, but nobody was forced to do anything. It was all just in good fun. So it was, it was nice to see that, ha- that happened that he had his former coworkers come out and uh, speak out in his favor. And I hope to, I really hope he didn't, do anything that put anybody in an uncomfortable place uh, that's a terrible thing to do but uh, so yeah just crazy stuff been happening and of course todd rogers being banned from twin galaxies uh, long story short you, you probably heard the story by now somebody figured out through emulation that it's not really possible to get the 5.51 time that he had claimed for 30 some years of course There's a big argument over the validity of that, too, because while it's emulation, have you tried doing these simulations on an actual console, you'll get different results, possibly. Personally, I really don't know. I don't know what the truth is with the whole Todd Rogers thing. I'm just a stand -er. I have no comment on the validity or non-validity of anything related to Twin Galaxies. To me, it's just a scoreboard. Yes, I have some scores on Twin Galaxies, but I only have them up there just so I can have some kind of recorded scores and, of course, hopefully to encourage some friendly competition. Some people think that having all of his scores and a lifetime ban is harsh, but to be fair, that is the rule on Twin Galaxies. If there is reason to believe that you've cheated, and apparently they have reason to believe that he might have cheated or misled uh, what his score really was, basically... Twin Galaxies wants nothing to do with you. You're gone. Banned for life. Gone. And I'm not going to get into all the other scores that people have said were not legitimate from Todd Rogers, but uh, the only other thing I can think of, I know there have been several, but one big thing I can think of off the top of my head is barnstorming and that I know that people have hacked barnstorming to remove all the obstacles so you can just fly your plane straight ahead without moving because every time you move, you lose time. And even without any obstacles on the screen, people have not been able to get the time that Todd Rogers has claimed all these years. So I, that that had nothing to do with uh, the actual dispute. What happened was in the summer of 2017, Twin Galaxies added a dispute option to all the scores they have on file. So if you have reason to dispute that particular score, you click on the dispute option and Post your case. And that's exactly what somebody did. As soon as that option went in, somebody went in and posted the dispute, and it took this long to resolve it. And interestingly, the current world record on Dragster now belongs to the person who filed the dispute. (laughs) And (laughs) I have mixed feelings about that because, well, I might have mentioned this before, but there is a world record listed on Twin Galaxies for Asteroids Deluxe on the Atari 7800. The date listed there was 2001. The problem with that is that asteroids deluxe on the 7800 didn't exist until 2007. Part of me wants to dispute that score. I don't have enough uh, reputation points on twin galaxies to dispute it, but part of me wants to dispute it. In fact, I've even posted about this on a message board thread uh, a couple of years ago when were, uh, there were there's a thread about invalid scores. And I pointed that out and somebody commented and said, you know what? I'll bet I know exactly what happened when Walter was entering world records. When the site went online, he probably just accidentally put that on that track and meant to put it in the arcade track so far. It hasn't been moved. I don't know if 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 I do want to dispute that though because what'll happen well I will end up with the world record and I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to say, "Oh, that's that score is not right. Oh, by the way, I have the world record now." <laughs> I don't I don't want to be that guy. And of course you probably all heard about uh was it was, it, was it either Donkey Kong I think it was Donkey Kong forum that no longer acknowledges Billy Mitchell's seven-digit scores anymore because they found out that he must have been using MAME instead of a real Donkey Kong machine. He had said that the videos he submitted for his high scores for Donkey Kong were direct feeds. Basically, the Donkey Kong machine he was using was hacked so that the uh, video signal and audio signal could go straight into a video recording Instead of just having an open air recording of the Donkey Kong screen, like with a video camera and everything, which is what people normally do, well, somebody examined his video submissions and found evidence that he actually used MAME, a multiple arcade machine emulator, which could be manipulated easily so that you could, say, use save states and resume. Like let's say in the you get to a certain point in the game, you decide you know what. I'm going to save the state of this game. That's what a save state does. You can save that actual game right where you are so you can load it up later and start right where you left off, which means that, hey, you could, if you do that, you save state, and then you lose a life, well, just restart the game in your save state, and it resumes from where you were, and there's reason to believe that Billy Mitchell may have done that, especially because no one has ever seen him in person pull off. A million point or more score. They've seen him do like 800, 900,000, but never a million or more, but he has several videos of that happening. And of course they're direct feeds, but what somebody figured out was he must've been using MAME because the way that MAME renders graphics is that it does certain blocks at a certain time. Basically it renders the graphics, renders the screens in different blocks, different chunks over a matter of seconds, while an actual arcade machine, at least an arcade Donkey Kong, it renders the whole screen from left to right. Or is it right to left? I think it's left to right. The actual arcade machine doesn't render it in chunks. For example, like it won't render all the ladders and then all the girders and then uh, Donkey Kong and then Pauline or whatever. It'll render the left pixels, it'll, it'll render all the pixels starting from the left and going all the way to the right. So they found that the video, if you slow it down, does not do that. So Donkey Kong forums no longer acknowledges Billy's scores that were not performed live when he himself, he himself said on camera that the only valid scores, the only valid world records are the ones that are done live. So I I don't know what's going to happen in terms of his twin galaxies records. If, uh, He's gonna be scrutinized on there I, I really don't know I don't know if anybody's filed a dispute or what as for my own personal opinion I don't know all I know is that I've met Billy Mitchell and he seemed to be a really nice guy he really did and to me in terms of judging a person that's all that matters if you're a nice guy you're a nice guy if he's a cheater then so be it I, I really don't know I I really don't know again. Well, to me, video games are video games. They're meant to be fun. They're not supposed to be like this all-important, base your life around how valid these scores are. Yeah, again, I have my own records. I have records on Twin Galaxies and Orcade.com, but to me, it's for fun and for friendly competition. Figured I should at least address that. uh, Otherwise, people would notice, like, hey, why didn't you talk about these things? Well, I just did. But from this point on, I just want to talk about some happy, fun stuff. I am talking to you now from a new location in the same room where I've recorded this podcast before. I said before how one of my New Year's goals was to get this room in order, and I've started that. I moved my computer to the other side of the room to a much more accommodating desk And uh, so far, it's going okay. The room is still a mess, and it's going to be a worse mess before I finish, but that's the way it is. I'm just really excited about things, and um, I'm really excited about this podcast because, hey, I'm going to be talking about two kind of three games. First thing I'll talk about, Clark Otto, a very prolific Atari 7800 Basic homebrewer. He has a couple of games I'm going to talk about right now and they are called Hollywood Brawler and Scammer Brawler. You know, I've noticed a pattern with the Franco Dragon games. I've mentioned before how he tends to use inside jokes in his games. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But the other pattern I'm noticing is that, at least with Clark's games that I've covered in this podcast is that it seems that there's a theme of carrying out what some people would probably love to do in real life. Fat Axel lets you get revenge on Axel Rose for his annoying antics. Chicago Basement helps you live out that fantasy of finding an ultra-rare prototype game. Roof Pooper, well, I'm sure there are some people who would like to live out that fantasy, but still, both Hollywood Brawler and Scammer Brawler let you take out your frustrations on some bothersome people, albeit in 8-bit two-dimensional form, on a 32-kilobyte 7800 basic game cartridge. Let me start with Hollywood Brawler, which Clark debuted on Atari Age on August 11th, 2016. In Clark's own words, here's the story. You're a former Hollywood star who has had it with stars of today, making so much money for doing so little and being arrogant and self-centered. So you've decided to knock some heads of some famous people, along with the usual punks and weirdos. But you only have two modes of pain, kick and punch. They know you're coming, so they've decided to take you on. So that's how Clark describes it. In the game, you're walking down a street in Hollywood. Uh, I don't think it's Hollywood Boulevard because, well, that's a big part of the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but there aren't any stars embedded in the sidewalk in the game. But anyway, your job, of course, is to beat up annoying celebrities. Among those are Lynn Lardashian, Dustin Buttface, and Smiley Virus. Clark made it no secret in his initial post that he was referring to, of course, Kim Kardashian, who seems to be famous for not really doing anything noteworthy, just famous for being famous, really. Justin Bieber, the young singer and musician who is, well, constantly getting into petty trouble and possibly still is, actually. And of course, Miley Cyrus, who at the time was basically a female equivalent of Justin Bieber, really, in terms of mischief and basically coming off as annoying and everything. But let's face it, she really did a lot of growing up in the past couple of years, at least in my opinion. Uh, And I don't think uh, Justin Bieber quite has uh, done the same. But anyway, Hollywood Brawler has two modes, and I'm holding up two fingers right now because you all can see me, right? And those two modes are easy and hard. In the easy mode, you just beat up celebrities for a certain amount of time. In hard mode, there's also kind of a boss character whom Clark simply calls a certain ugly guy, and I quote, saying that he doesn't even know whom this character resembles. But whatever the case, you're given a limited number of hit points. 150 in easy mode, 100 in hard mode. The longer your encounter with a celebrity, the more your hit points drain, So when you do encounter the annoying celebrity, you have to beat up said person as soon as possible upon making contact with her or him. Once your hit points drain, you're given a simple game over screen. There's also Scammer Brawler, which is basically the same game, except instead of celebrities, you're encountering, and ideally beating up, scammers from Atari age and, as Clark says, other internet trolls. The scammers that Clark originally singled out were back in 89, Natawi, as he says, N A T A W E E, and Janet Maddox Gore, I think that's how it's pronounced. Natowee, as she was referred to, is actually former Atari Age user Natalie888, who on July 16th, 2015, posted a message in the Marketplace forum on Atari Age. What she was offering for sale was an Atari Vader model, you know, one of the four Switch all black 2600 consoles, complete in box with Pac Man. And Pac Man itself was also complete in box, and there were some other games as well in that posting. Natalie888 said to make an offer. So after she posted some pictures, the general agreement was that what she had was worth about $100, give or take. She disagreed, though, saying that it's brand new in factory packaging and worth $300. And on top of that, she had sold a sealed game for almost $100. This being despite the fact that she said, make an offer. Atari Age user Save2600, who has contributed to this podcast several times in the past, he posted a link to a Marketplace ad for pretty much the exact same package in the same condition. Save2600 actually bought it for $100, and he later turned around and tried to sell it with 10 additional games and even with those 10 additional games, he had to bump the price down to $95 for the entire package, including shipping, well under the $300 that Natalie 888 was asking. But her response, well, you know what? I'm going to jack up the price to $400. Why? Because she claimed she could easily get $200 for it. And then she followed up with another message saying, and I quote, I'll. Uh, I'm sorry there's no apostrophe there there's a just a space I L L get an easy 200.00 for it someplace else like a real collector not you young thinkers uh run on sentence is how it was written by the way this is old school get it space question mark and uh, despite several Atari age users posting all kinds of evidence showing that what she was offering for sale was worth maybe $100 Natalie Triple Eight countered by saying, while it may be worth $100 to most buyers and sellers, it holds sentimental value to her, so she can't part with it for that price. So yes, she was putting a price tag on sentimentality, which I'm sure other people quite understand. Ooh, for that extra money, I get some wistful memories. Quite understandable, right? Sorry to editorialize in this story, let me get back to it. There were several more responses to which Natalie Triple Eight attempted to shoot back and of course, other people were trolling her responses. And I should mention that all of her posts, including the original ones that started the thread, had, uh, well, questionable grammar and punctuation, to say the least, as you probably gathered from my reading from her posts. The thread devolved into 25 pages of Atari Age users posting various Photoshopped images, mostly involving poop humor, William Shatner, triangles, and Hello Kitty, or a combination of any of the four. Natalie 888 would chime in periodically and failed attempts to heckle the responses until August 29th when she insisted that people had modified her posts. She insisted people actually somehow hacked her posts and added graphics to them, which of course nobody can. Nobody has that ability except her. But regardless, she furthermore claimed that Atari Age somehow gave her a computer virus and somewhere in this huge thread, the word poopy heads" was involved somehow, which I believe she picked up herself from one of the many trolling responses she received, making fun of her original posts. And uh, this is also where the name Nattawee comes from, as people mocked her posts about how she needs to sell her Atawi! Well, the response to her accusations of her posts being hacked were met with 20 more pages of various photoshopped images again, mostly involving poop humor, William Shatner, triangles, and Hello Kitty, with some fat axle memes thrown in for good measure. Prompting Atari Age user Grig on June 8th, 2016, to ask if Franco Dragon or Benny Bingo could possibly take the Atari 2600 game Fast Food and hack it into a fat axle game. And of course, it didn't take Franco Dragon long to respond to that request with a 7800 fast food clone called Fat Axel, which was discussed in episode 22 of this podcast, of course. And uh, speaking of Franco Dragon's games, it's actually this Natalie Triple Eight thread that launched the concept of the Chicago Basement game that Franco Dragon did, and was discussed on episode number 28. Atari age user Nutsy Doodleheimer added a Photoshop picture of a basement that had a Defender 3 arcade cabinet, a deep dish pizza, a Chicago-style hot dog, an Atari 2800 console, pitfall cartridge, several posters of Chicago sports teams, a pile of boxes, and Steve Bartman. And he captioned that picture, Chicago basement. And for those of you not in the know, a Chicago hot dog is an all-beef hot dog, ideally Vienna beef. It's inside a poppy seed hot dog bun and topped with mustard, relish, chopped onion, celery salt, tomato slices, and optional sport peppers and optional dill pickle spear. So yeah, two types of pickle, I guess. Doesn't have ketchup. And by the way, the no ketchup thing is not a Chicago thing. That's true for anywhere where hot dogs are considered important. Go to New York. You ask for a hot dog with everything, no ketchup on it. Go to Kansas City. You ask for a hot dog with everything, there's no ketchup on it. Go to Montreal, for God's sakes. You ask for a hot dog with everything on it, it's not going to have ketchup. It's not just a Chicago thing. I hate when people like try to accuse Chicago of being anti-ketchup fascists. We're not it's everywhere. But anyway, um, I I did get some feedback, by the way, about uh, the Chicago Basement episode, how it was making people hungry for pizza. So now I'm making people hungry for hot dogs. So there you have it. You're welcome, everybody. But uh, getting back to the topic, the various pictures and trolling messages were continuing through April 15th, 2017. Though by that time, they had slowed to a trickle with one necro-bump on New Year's Day 2018. Oh, and by the way, yeah, that's well over a year, almost, wow, going on two years from when the original post happened, and of course, they did mark the anniversary of the original post. Now, the Natalie888 thread made reference to both Back in 89 and Janet Maddox Gray, so let's take a look at these, um, interesting folks, shall we? Let's start with back in 89. Back in 89 emerged in late 2010 on Atari age, and he seemed to be encountering a lot of hard luck. He needed to get a car. He raised funds by selling a lot of his collectibles, including VHS tapes and his Atari 5200 collection. Back in 89 was able to get his car, but alas, shortly after he got it, he found out that it had motor problems and ergo would need some repairs that he couldn't afford. So he tried to raise the money by selling Perler bead video game characters that his wife made. Uh, Perler beads, uh, I don't quite know how to describe, you know what, just look it up on Wikipedia or something. <laughs> but anyway, six weeks later, back in 89, posted about how his fiance was threatening to move back to her former hometown far away without him. Uh, Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait, fiance? Wait, isn't he married? Hmm. Yeah, didn't we just say he has a wife? I'm confused. Anyway, I'll try to figure that out later. Uh, He then posted another message saying that his daughter had her heart set on a Hello Kitty bike and he wanted to get it for her for Christmas, but unfortunately, he couldn't afford the $64 price tag that Walmart had for it. So he hit up the Atari Age community for donations. And, just a few days before Christmas, he posted another message at which he was asking for money, but this time not for him, not for his daughter, and not for his wife or his fiancée or his concubine or whatever, but for a disabled quote-unquote old friend who was denied disability pay and lived in public housing. This post, however, was the last straw for many Atari Age users. It was not hard to notice that every post back in 89 ever made to Atariage was to ask for money, and he ended up being banned. As for the third so-called scammer mentioned in Franco Dragon's list, Janet Maddox Gray. There was one and only one post from this user on Atariage when she started a thread titled, My New Life. Her sole message, Well, after a long time, I finally returned to Age." comma, 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 miss me? And noting the juxtapositions of the misspellings of after and Atari, some believed that Janet Maddox-Garay was actually Natalie888. Others suggested, perhaps jokingly, that it was back in 89 after a sex change, hence the topic My New Life, with one user joking that it was now known what all those donations to back in 89 really went to. However, somebody did a Google search for the name Janet Maddox Garay, and it indeed yielded a real woman in Georgia with that name. She appeared in a video about Justice, telling the story about how her grandson had died from shaken baby syndrome. And her avatar picture did match a picture found in a Facebook profile for one Janet Garay in Georgia, However, another user did warn that that doesn't really mean anything. Anybody can take a picture from anybody's Facebook profile and create a fake Atari age account with it. But whatever the case, the thread quickly devolved into a 27-page series of oddball YouTube links and Photoshop pictures involving William Shatner. So, um, that's the story of the three main alleged scammers that inspired the Scammer Brawler variation of Hollywood Brawler. There are several other Scammer characters in the game, and there's a brief explanation of each in the manual. There are a couple of differences in gameplay with Scammer Brawler. For one thing, there's now a bird that will occasionally appear on the screen and uh, uh, relieve itself, and uh, of course you need to avoid the bird droppings. Another difference is there's a slightly different Game Over screen. In Hollywood Brawler, the Game Over screen simply says Game Over, but in Scammer Brawler, the screen says Go Sleep in the Cold. The brawler games, like most of the Franco Dragon games, they have very basic graphics and sound. Uh, They're fun if you like beat em ups, I gotta admit I do have an issue in that the enemies often kind of just appear out of nowhere in the middle of the screen, instead of say walking from the other side of the screen. They may appear right in the middle from thin air, so you gotta be careful and just ready at a moment's notice to start hitting your fire buttons. The sound effects, as usual with Clark's games, are uh, very minimal, but I think they're actually a great fit for the game. I particularly love the rumbly sound effect when you get into a tangle. Each game, like several of other Clark's uh, homebrews, the phrase I like to use, as homebrew as you can get. The labels are simply printed paper labels, black and white. They're cut out manually, stuck under the cartridge, and the manual is a simple... Eight and a half by 11 piece of folded paper printed out on a home printer. And uh, that's what you get for that. As for availability, the cartridge is not available in any stores. Never was as far as I know. But if you contact Franco Dragon on Atariage, he might have some available. No promises. I don't interpret that to mean he definitely has some available. You just ask him, hey, do you have any Scammer Brawler? Do you have any Hollywood Brawler? He might have one or two left. He might be able to make one for you. I don't know. I think he charges $20 a pop, and you can also get the ROM, so you can play it in emulation or on a rewritable cartridge. You can get that ROM from the Hollywood Brawler discussion thread, and of course, I will link that in the show notes. Now, I wasn't creative enough to think of a witty transition, so let's talk about Failsafe. Before I get into Failsafe, I should talk about another game called Countermeasure. Why should I talk about Countermeasure? Well, in case you didn't know, it's because Failsafe is actually a sequel to Countermeasure. Countermeasure is a game on the Atari 5200, and thanks to the creativity of the homebrew community, it is now also available on Atari 8-bit computers. The backstory of Countermeasure is that terrorists seized a missile silo complex and are threatening to attack Washington, D.C. And because you don't want the spy museum or the Camelot show bar to be destroyed, you have to drive a super tank and use its turrets to destroy the missile silos across seven sites. And uh, each of those sites not only has a missile silo, but also a supply depot. You have to do that within ten minutes to prevent the missiles from launching. And as you're doing all that, there are tanks and jeeps and cruise missiles that'll come after you and shoot at you. Uh, the good news, though, is that their weapons only have half the range that yours has. Oh, and uh, don't forget to refuel at the supply depots. If you run out of gas, your super tank explodes. The supply depots also give you clues telling you a letter, either E or L or O.
1: You're looking good, just like
0: and those letters are part of a fail-safe code, and the clue not only tells you the letter, but also at what position in the fail-safe code that it falls. If time runs out before you destroy all the silos, you have to dock your tank at a silo, enter the war room, and enter the fail-safe code to prevent the missiles from launching. And just to add to the challenge, uh, you're not given the entire code, so you're going to have to guess the missing letters. So... That's countermeasure. Now let's move over to Failsafe, the sequel. Of course, it was programmed by Bob DiCrescenzo, who also is known as Pac-Man Plus on the Atari Age forums. And uh, the first hint that Failsafe was going to be happening was November 25th, 2009, when Bob posted three screenshots, including the title screen... He didn't see much else from the game, but judging from the screenshots and the name Failsafe, Atari Age user Ransom said that it looked like Countermeasure, given that Countermeasure used the term Failsafe to refer to the codes that you receive. Bob said that it's what would have been Countermeasure 2, but he was asked to change the title to Failsafe. Bob had listed some differences between Failsafe and Countermeasure. For one thing, Failsafe is destination-based, meaning that you had to reach the other end of the level to get one of the numbers for the code, it's a hexadecimal code. Failsafe scrolls left to right, while Countermeasure scrolls up and down. And, well, okay, technically left and right is not scrolling, left and right is actually uh, panning, but uh, yeah, we'll forgive Bob for that technicality there. But basically you start on the left, you move right, and you can't go backwards. The code has four digits. It's a hexadecimal code this time. And uh, those of you who are not familiar with hexadecimal, unlike with our common decimal system, which has 10 different digits, 0 through 9, hexadecimal has 16 different digits, 0 through 9. And then, since there aren't really what we call Arabic numbers that are outside of that range, hexadecimal uses the Roman alphabet. So 0 through 9, and then A through F. For example, 10 in hexadecimal is A. Failsafe has six levels and five of those levels give you a random position in the code. There is a missile silo in the sixth level and to get to it you have to go through a minefield. Extra fun! <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, actually yes it is extra fun. <laughs> but there, if you don't reach the missile silo in time or if you don't guess the launch code in time, the planet explodes, the game's over, kind of like Missile Command, I guess. I don't know. Um, If you do put in the code correctly, the game starts over, kind of like in Countermeasure, but it gets harder, also kind of like in Countermeasure. Failsafe now has an additional two enemies, and uh, at this point, Bob was thinking about putting power-ups in the game, but he wasn't sure if there'd be enough room to put power-ups in the game. Bob also credited Jay Veerer. I think his first name is Jeff. He wrote a level and enemy placement editor that helped Bob with the development of Failsafe. So, at the time of the posting, Bob was having a hard time developing the fifth and sixth levels. So, he's like, well, here's what I have so far. And he said, playable ROMs will be posted later. And a few days later, um, he fulfilled that promise on November 29th by posting a playable ROM for Failsafe. At this point, he was actually still considering power-ups temporary power-ups he was considering a speed boost a shot distance boost that is only your shot not the enemy shots he was planning for an invincibility power-up and a power-up that freezes the enemies and also at this point there weren't any sounds in music bob habitually puts the sounds in the music in the end if anything he'll just put a placeholder if anything he'll just put a placeholder early in the development also, he was thinking of tweaking the difficulty, he says, this might be a little bit too hard at this point. And of course, Bob talked about the object of the game, and it was pretty much the same as the object of countermeasure. And he talks about the enemies, and there are pillboxes, there are jeeps, there are cruise missiles, just like in the original countermeasure, and there is also a vertical stationary plant. And vertical stationary plants will always shoot up or down. So you kind of have to time yourself properly when you're passing one of those vertical stationary plants, obviously. There's also a human fighter, as he calls it. And what they do is they hide behind the bunkers, and they try to shoot you from around the corners. He says they shoot constantly, but they're kind of slow. And they're hard to hit because of their small size. At the bottom of the screen, you have a fuel tank gauge, which decreases slowly. And just like in countermeasure, your tank explodes if it empties That's got to be a huge flaw, though. You would think that the military would come up with a better design. You'd think they'd find a way to design a tank that wouldn't explode just because it ran out of gas. I mean, they would have to build the fuel tank already at least partially filled with gas or else it would explode right away, wouldn't it? Anyway, I'm not going to... Oh, man. Anyway, uh, man, I wish I had a video game physics segment like I do in Pie Factory Podcast. (laughs) Anyway... At the top left of the screen, it tells you the number of tanks that you have left, and the top right tells you what the current level is. And at this point, Bob didn't think there would be a high score cartridge support, simply because he was running out of room. The next day, November 30th, Bob said that the levels and enemy placement were just about done, and he talked about how there were 8 difficulty increases. The difficulty goes up 8 times and as the difficulty increases, the number of enemies that are on the same side increases, starting at 4 for the novice setting, and it goes all the way up to 8. As difficulty increases, the shot range, both yours and the enemies', increase. As you advance from novice to expert, the time to launch decreases, so you have less time to figure out those codes. There are three difficulty settings at this point. If you set the difficulty to novice, you start at level 1, Intermediate level 13. The time you get to level 13, Bob says it's the equivalent of stopping the missile launch twice. Expert setting, you start at level 25, which is the equivalent of stopping the missile launch four times. The next day, December 1st, Bob said that he made a change to the novice level so that there'd only be three enemies on the screen at a time, which will make the game fairly easy. He disclaimed that he might change the enemy locations later on to even it out a little bit. He added some sounds, specifically player and enemy explosion sounds, which meant that he still needed to add sounds for the cruise missile, the jeep, the title screen, the victory song, and the, um, sorry you lose the world is over song, which he calls a death march. He's still doubtful that he'll have room for power-ups, but he's still going to try to put them in, and, um, he said that... Bank switching technically is a possibility, but he didn't want to do that just so he could have power-ups. I think I mentioned bank switching before. It's pretty technical even for me uh, to explain. What I think that means is that uh, if you run out of memory, the memory that you need will clear up and uh, be replaced by the code that you do need or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. I should shut up about that. But the next day, December 2nd, Bob had added all the sounds except for the victory song, He was still planning to adjust where the enemies are placed, Uh, he says, especially for the novice level. He's still going to add power-ups and, of course, PAL support, and he posted the latest ROMs. On December 5th, the power-ups were added, according to Bob's post. He said there was a 25% chance that a power-up would appear after you shoot an enemy. There were some new sounds added. There was a sound for collecting a power-up, a sound for guessing the launch code incorrectly, and what he described as a rising sound when you enter a launch code. At this point, the only sound he needed to do was the victory song, the save the world song. He said he was having issues trying to think of one. (laughs) And he's a musician. Yeah, it is the hardest thing in the world for a musician when they get writer's block. Oh my goodness. He still had to add PAL support, and he still needed to uh, work on the enemy placement and he promised that a ROM would be posted soon, and sure enough, the next day, he did that. And in the new ROM that he posted, there was a uh, attempt at PAL compatibility, and he asked people to test it because he had no PAL device to work with. There were four power-ups, as he said before. There are four power-ups. There's the speed power-up, the letter S, and when the speed power-up is activated, your tank is light green. The shot distance, or D power-up, When that is active, your tank turns dark blue, and there's an invincibility power-up, which turns your tank hot pink, and a freeze enemy, or F power-up. By the way, the invincibility power-up, of course, is the I power-up. The F power-up turns your tank white. When the power-up is about to expire, your tank flashes, to give you a little bit of a warning. And at this point, all the sounds were in there, the enemy locations were adjusted, and there we go. The next day, though, Bob said, you know what? I'm thinking of possibly changing a couple of things. For one thing, I, uh, I think I want the enemies to be a specific color instead of just random colors. He said the randomness was kind of an accident, but he, kind of, he liked it, so he's not really sure if he wants to keep everybody at random colors or have them have their individual colors or what. The other thing Bob was thinking about doing was giving you 60 seconds to type in the launch code instead of 30 Countermeasure gave you 15 seconds, but there were only three letters and three positions. But he had to make it longer for failsafe because now you have 16 different possible digits and four positions. So he wanted feedback for that. And he said, hey, other than those two things I'm thinking about, uh, we might have a release candidate in our hands. A couple of Atari Age users suggested maybe uh, for that timing question, maybe the difficulty switch setting could help in there. And Bob decided to keep what he called multicolor enemies going on. He was thinking about making the pillboxes the same color and the jeeps the same color, but he kind of likes the more colorfulness uh, because of the earth-toned backgrounds. And uh, it's kind of interesting, though, because in the military, of course, everything's kind of like earthy colors, like the camouflage colors. So, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is, um, spoiler alert, it's a fun game. But Bob noticed something. He he thought that when enemies shoot at you diagonally, the shots actually last longer, so he wanted to look into that. And uh, he was also considering slowing down the cruise missile as you progress through the game. Uh, not, not meaning the cruise missile gets slower, but he, wouldn't, uh, he felt that they get pretty nasty toward the end, so he wanted to just uh, tweak that a little bit. On December 9th, there was a release candidate... The difficulty switches now had functionality. The left one lets you switch between 60 seconds and 30 seconds to guess the launch code. The right difficulty switch set the number of lives you start with, either three or five. Bob evened out the diagonal shots from the enemies and uh, it made them a little bit slower. Uh, The player vertical shot distance was evened out so that they're about the same both horizontally and vertically. And as a result, the player actually has a further shot range vertically than the enemy does. Bob slowed down the cruise missiles for the first eight successful launch preventions, or heats, as they're called. And then after that, they go to their normal fast speed. And if you save the world, you get 10,000 points. But not so fast. It seems that Bob might have found a bug in level three. Uh, which had no enemies until the very last column, as he said. So he was going to look into fixing that, of course. The next day, December 8th, he found the bug and then said that he was going to be looking at two fairly difficult things. He wanted to change the tank sounds when the power-ups were activated. And also, um, at this point, if you shot one enemy, all the enemies disappeared. And he said the reason that that happened is because he didn't really have a way to track which enemy was actually the one that fired that caused the player to explode. So he was going to try to figure out how to remove only the enemy that shot you. The other problem that Bob was having was that uh, if somebody shot you, all the enemies on the screen disappeared, he said. It's because I really don't know how to track which enemy was the one responsible for shooting you? I only want to remove that one enemy, but he was going to uh, figure out how to work that through. But later on, he said, "Oh, you know what? I remember now why I removed all the enemies after you get killed. He said, and I quote, "There are situations where more than one moving enemy, cruise missile, jeep, fighter, etc, could be either in your vicinity or aiming directly at you, even though you are killed by another. This would cause you to get killed immediately upon reentry. He ended up deciding, you know what, I'm just going to leave it as is. If you get killed, all the enemies disappear, and that way you get a little bit of a breather, because the game is hard enough as it is. Twelve hours later, Bob posted Release Candidate 2. This version fixed the enemy problem that was with level 3, and there was also a tweak that makes the engine rev a little higher when you get the speed power-up in the wee hours of the next morning. Atari Age user Adept Rapier found a minor bug. At the end of level 1, he got a speed power up, and while said power up was active, his tank could not exit the level. So that evening, Bob posted Released Candidate 3, which fixed that bug. December 12th, Release Candidate 4 is now posted, and there's a new feature in it. If a power up scrolls off the screen, another one can appear. Also, it was now possible to get another power-up while an existing power-up was still in effect. Unfortunately, Bob found that his most recent change actually introduced a bug in which he would always have the maximum number of enemies on the screen. Ah, that's rough. <laughs> oh, that should be an option. Just play with all the enemies, see what happens. Anyway, but uh, that same evening, December twelfth, Bob posted release candidate five to fix the issue of all those enemies at the same time. And at this point, Bob was looking for, as he said, a good classic picture to use for the label without using the countermeasure picture. He planned to start taking pre-orders once the label was taken care of. On the next day, Bob said that he was having a hard time finding a good picture for the label in the box, at least a good picture that wasn't already used. He, perhaps jokingly, said that Failsafe might be his first 7800 text label game. Atari Age user Alan hinted that it might be a good excuse to have a label design contest. Meanwhile, Atari Age user GroovyB, the developer behind the next episode's Wasp game, tested the PAL version of Failsafe. He found that if there's only one tank on the screen, the screen looks good, but as soon as the play field gets to the first turret, there's an intermittent line at the top of the screen near the status bar and at the bottom of the scrolling screen. He also found it difficult to see the black-colored shots against the dark green background of the trees. December 16th, Bob added four new power-ups and disclaimed that their appearance would be pretty rare. There was now a P power-up for extra tank. The L power-up would display a random letter in the code, basically the same thing a depot does, really and then there's the E-Power-Up, which refuels your tank, and the T-Power-Up, which gives you an additional 5 minutes on the launch time. Bob also tweaked enemy placements so that enemies wouldn't appear in the places where you can't shoot them. He made a similar tweak to the cruise missiles. There wasn't an updated ROM posted this time, pending corrected colors in PAL mode. However, he did post the updated ROM on December 21st. However, Bob noticed a flickering scan line that he couldn't figure out how to remove. Well, that is until December 26th, when he posted Release Candidate 7 after fixing that pesky line and the ones that Groovy Bee found. He also added high-score cartridge support, but at the sacrifice of interrupting the intro music when going from the title screen to the high-score screen and back. Going into the new year, on January 4th Groovy once again tested the PAL version and he confirmed that the previous visual glitches were gone, but he found new problems on the title screen. For one thing, when you select the difficulty level, the screen briefly blacks out when you move the joystick up and down. Another issue he found is that when you first power the game up, the title screen appears, and then blanks out, and then appears again. And the other issue he found is that the title screen and the high-score cartridge screen didn't cycle back and forth. Bob said he knew about those first two issues, and that they happen on the NTSC version of the game as well, and, in fact, are pretty much a necessary evil due to the nature of how the programming works with the high-score cartridge support. That third issue that Groovy Bee mentioned, well, that was new to Bob. But the next day, January 5th, if you're not keeping track, Bob posted release candidate 9. The dark green color on level 5 that was such a problem for some people became a red color to represent bricks. Also, he made a tweak that no longer blanks the screen during the level select. And uh, Bob had a feeling this would be the final released version. On January 9th, while recovering from a nasty illness, Bob posted Release Candidate 10, which fixed the colors to make them easier to distinguish in PAL mode. On January 18th, Albert announced the Failsafe Label Contest. Entries that were going to be considered had to meet Bob's request that it be custom artwork like with his previous labels, but with the Atari 7800 text on the top. Also like his previous labels. The contest would run through the end of the month. Uh, spoiler alert, there were 50 entries and Jawfish and Nonor242 won for their joint design. And for their winning design, Jawfish and Nonner242 won not only a copy of the failsafe cartridge, but also a $50 gift certificate to the Atari Age Store. And uh, I will put a link to the label design contest in the show notes. On February 14th, as a Valentine's Day present, Bob put back the ability to scroll backwards in the game, and he asked for feedback on it. Does it add to the gameplay? Does it make it less playable? How do you feel about it? Etc.? One thing about scrolling backwards, though, if you passed an enemy, and that enemy scrolled off the screen, if you scroll back the other way, the enemy wouldn't be there. The four new power-ups were tweaked so that they appear a little bit more frequently, and uh, Bob forgot to post the updated ROM with this message, so on February 17th he posted the ROM, and a PDF version of the manual, and pictures of the labels. On February 26th, Bob changed the code that you have to guess from being a hexadecimal number to an octal number, meaning that each digit of the code would now be between 0 and 7 inclusive. And of course, Bob posted an updated ROM and an updated version of the manual as well. On March 10th, Bob fixed an issue that involved the E power-up and problems it had with uh, various scrolling issues. Either the ROM itself wasn't included in the first post, or it was deleted later, because the ROM doesn't actually appear in the message if you go back today. But anyway, on March 22nd, Mark Oberheuser posted pictures of the box that he made for Failsafe. And moving on to June 19th, Albert announced that 50 copies were available to purchase through the Atari Age store. It's currently still available from the Atari Age store, and of course I'm going to link that in the show notes. Failsafe was since included on the limited edition cartridge called the Bob DiCrescenzo Collection, and that was released in 2014. And I did some scouring for some high scores on Failsafe, and I got a couple here. The record holder, as far as I can tell for intermediate difficulty, is Lid Likes Television. Mentioned him before in this podcast. He scored 222,750. And that was during the High Score Club challenge on Atari Age ending May 1st, 2016. Advanced difficulty, that was Wilson Oyama, surprise, surprise, with 182,800, also in another Atari Age High Score Club from a few years earlier. And uh, that contest ended June 30th, 2013. So, as for my opinion of Failsafe, what can I say? It's a freaking good game. I have a lot of fun with it. I was so excited when I first played it because I really didn't know anything about it. I got it on the Bob DiCrescenzo collection cartridge that I mentioned before. I never had it as a standalone cartridge, and the uh, Bob DiCrescenzo collection cartridge did not come with a manual. The manual would have been much too huge. So I was kind of playing it by ear, and I didn't quite know everything about it, but I was able to figure out the gameplay. And on top of all that, I was thinking, wow, this is such a great original game. And then I found out it was a sequel to Countermeasure. I was like, (laughs) "No!" but hey, what have you you got there? I just love the challenge of the game. I love, uh, there's something about it. Okay, it's kind of like Armor Attack and Bomb Squad on the Intellivision combined into one game. And uh, I love both of those games. Well, I used to love Bomb Squad, but I it's it takes forever anymore for me, so I don't play it anymore. Of course, it doesn't help that I got rid of my Intellivision uh, about 10 years ago, but still. Um, anyway, that was what I had to say about Failsafe. And let's hear what others have to say about not only Failsafe, but also Hollywood Brawler Scammer Brawler. Now, folks, as I read this feedback, things might be a little bit noisy. Uh, we recently had a pretty significant snowfall, and there are some people outside with snow blowers. Uh, I'm not a property owner, so I don't have to worry about that stuff. Uh, we have a guy in our building who takes care of all that for us. And he does. He does a fantastic job too, and he's a really nice guy. I'm glad we have him. But you're going. You might hear some noise leaking through. And uh, once again, my dog is uh, having fun with her squeaky toy and I closed the door to the room just to filter that out. So hopefully that won't be disrupting this podcast too much, but uh, let's talk about uh, what I heard from Holly, what I heard about Hollywood brawler, scammer brawler, gambler 172 Walter, who uh, you may remember was the person behind the ET book cart, which talked about last episode. And he recently posted a version of Piranha for the 7800. Uh, I'll link that in the show notes too. Um, and I, oh, I can't wait to try that out. But uh, anyway, short and simple as usual, Gambler172 says, Hi, Dubber. It's my Atari Age username. Two good games, not really top titles, but good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can totally see that. Uh, what, yeah, and the thing is, one of the reasons that the Brawler games aren't really among my favorites is quite simply, I'm not a big fan of beat-em-ups. I'm really not. I, I, I just don't like beat-em-ups. I find them kind of boring. And uh, Although I did kind of almost like Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, I have to say. Um, that, that's a unique beat-em-up for me. But anything else is pretty much the same thing. It's the same formula. I'm just not a big fan of beat-em-ups. That's all there is to it. And let's see. I do believe I have some more feedback about the Brawler games. Oh yeah, Trek MD, Eugenio. And uh, he says this about Hollywood Brawler. Are you annoyed by certain celebrities? Do you wish you could punch or kick them if you ever saw them? The likes of Justin Bieber, Kim Kardashian, or Miley Cyrus? Well, you don't have to wish anymore. Thanks to Franco Dragon, you can now play Hollywood Brawler on the Atari 7800 and have a way of beating up those annoying folks with no legal repercussions. You can even do it over and over again. The story of the game says you're a former Hollywood star who was totally fed up that these quote-unquote new stars do hardly anything but make tons of money for their tiny efforts. Nothing like what you had to do in your heyday. So you've decided that you're going to put them in their place along with any punks who also follow them. They may know you're coming, but you're ready to punch and kick them until they learn their lesson. Does this sound like fun? Well it's fun in concept. The game has both easy and hard modes for you to select. Your speed and health points differ in each. In easy mode, you move slower and you get 150 health points to start. In hard mode, you move faster and start off with 100 health points. Every time you encounter a celebrity and you fight with them, you lose health points. Once in a while, as you walk down the Hollywood streets, you'll bump into fireboxes which will replenish your health. In hard mode, you will also face against some big ugly guy, who knows who that is, before you keep advancing. As I said, this game is fun in concept, as I like the idea of punching and kicking those annoying people, but the execution of the game is a bit lacking. The graphics are simple, the sounds are basic, and the action is rather repetitive. So, not a particularly stellar game, but one that I can certainly play for a few minutes another version of the game does exist called Scammer Brawler, which is essentially the exact game, but with different graphics. And there we have it. Thank you for your thoughts, Eugenio. And yeah, I'll be honest, the reason I I only bought one instead of the other was that they pretty much are the same game with different graphics. Uh, I didn't realize until I researched for this podcast that Scammer Brawler does have the addition of the bird, but I figured... I want to get one of these homebrews. Which one should I get? You know what? I'm going to get the one that's a little bit more universal and less of an inside joke. And there is one thing I do have to talk about, though, when you talk about this. when you Honestly, Eugenio, I don't remember if this was your thoughts or if you're just reiterating what uh, Franco Dragon wrote in the manual. But one thing I do have to say about uh, the new stars who do hardly anything and make tons of money for their tiny efforts, at least in the case of Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus, you have to give them this. They go out on the road a lot, and that takes a lot of time and effort. That's really where the money is. Uh, just ask any anybody who got rich in the music industry, they'll tell you how they got rich. Was it from recording and selling albums? Well, no, it was from uh, touring, really. <laughs> I think the exception is Paul McCartney, whose strategy was to buy up publishing rights. So there you have that. But um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, trying out Hollywood Brawler and uh, giving me your thoughts on it, uh, Eugenio. So I'm going to move on to the other game that we talked about, and um, that is going to be Failsafe. Once again, we hear from Gambler172, Walter says, Failsafe is great, but I never made it to the end. (laughs) A lot of people say that, and Bob, several times during the development phase, says it's absolutely doable, even in advanced mode. But, uh, but thank you again, Walter, for your thoughts. Wongo Jack on Age says, Failsafe was the first 7800 homebrew that I'd bought. I was drawn to it because it is one of the few original homebrews that is not an arcade conversion. I think it is a very nice addition to the 7800 library, and an inspired continuation of the gameplay from Countermeasure for the 5200. I'll also add that while there have been sequels to combat that have been revealed or developed over the years, I've always felt that Countermeasure did a good job of keeping some of the core elements of Tank, that is, the original combat, while adding some compelling single-player action and strategy gameplay. If you accept that there is a lineage back to combat, then Failsafe may be one of the most Atari-ish games on this Atari console. I like that the game plays fast and the power-ups make it interesting and varied. I've made it up to the end on both the beginner and intermediate difficulties, and enjoyed both. I will say that I think you'd have to actually try to not get the correct code before reaching the end. As I remember, the hints are numerous. Unlike Countermeasure, you can only guess the code at the very end of the level, so that removes some of the flexibility for the player but that is easily traded for the fast and arcade-like gameplay in failsafe. I suppose that I haven't exhausted the game's options, but it seems to me that once you play the game for the first 20 to 20-30 minutes, you've pretty much seen everything. There are no real secrets to discover, or new boss battles to fight, just new maps and more challenging obstacles in your path. Several times while playing, I tried to imagine if this game would have looked and felt like an NES game to me if I played it in 87 or 88. I don't think it would have quite made it in the NES library as is. They probably would have insisted either on longer levels or more difficult gameplay. In this fictional past, if I had rented Failsafe for the NES and brought it home in 88, I probably would have compared it to something like Commando or Russian Attack and stopped playing rather quickly. On the other hand, if I had discovered this game on a Commodore 64 compilation disc copied from a friend, I would have been very pleased. I think it fits nicely with the type of games that were traded back and forth for the Commodore 64, but there were still much more ambitious games to play on that platform as well. Thank you so much, WongoJack, for your thoughts on that. Oh man, you had to mention the Commodore 64. I, more and more every day, I keep really missing the Commodore 64 I had uh, when I... Uh, when I was uh, 12, 13 years I was 13, actually, yeah. Yeah, I got that for a graduation present from 8th grade in 1988, actually. I was late in the Commodore 64 game. But, man, I'm really missing that thing. But thank you for your thoughts on that, and... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be quite frank. I suck at fail-safe. So I can't really say one thing or another about playing the game for 20, 30 minutes and seeing everything. I, I just plain sucked at it. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a heck of a lot of fun, because it is. I'm just terrible at it. That's all there is to it. Oh my goodness. But yeah, it's absolutely a nice addition to the 7800 library. Totally agree with you on that. And, and, and yeah, this has definitely got some combat vibes to it. It's like kind of... A logical place where the combat lineage would have been had it continued on. So, thank you for that, Wongo Jack. And I just want to get back to Trek MD, to Eugenio, because uh, he wanted to send some feedback about the previous episode's games, but he couldn't do it because he was on a cruise. He took his parents to uh, NASA, Key West, and Havana. And it sounded like he had a really good time. I mean, I Really, if you take a trip on a good cruise line, oh my God, you will so love it. If you ever get the means to do that, please do that. My wife and I did that for our honeymoon. We, uh, we cruised out of uh, New York City to Bermuda, and we had just an amazing time. But anyway, this is not about me. This is about Atari 7800 Homebrews. So let's see what uh, Eugenio has to say about Roof Pooper. He says, so we all do it, right? From even before we are born to the day we die, we all poop. Seems only appropriate that someone make a game about this biologic function for the 7800. Clearly meant as a joke, Roof Pooper has the player control a guy who just... has to go. You know, when you have to, you have to. Unfortunately, the guy the player controls just can't seem to reach the right place to do it, and decides to just sit at the edge of a roof and drop the... business... on unsuspecting people as they walk by. For better or for worse, the streets do have cops walking by as well. Losing control over them is not the best idea as it will get the pooping man to jail if he, well, goes on three cops. That also means game over for you. Roof Pooper is a simple game that, despite a theme that may put off some players, is fun to play. Essentially it's like a shooter, but there are no lasers involved. There's just another type of bomb involved. The graphics are simple, but the pedestrians who are victimized are rendered rather well and are easy to recognize. There are even some characters from other games by Franco Dragon. The buildings also change as your score increases. Sound effects are sparse, but they do the job. So, though Roof Pooper may not be a stellar game, it is enjoyable. If you just want to play a quick game, this one fits the bill. Alright, I'm going to interrupt myself uh, just to uh, so I don't babble on for too long without responding. Uh, I, you're right. I didn't notice that at first, but yeah, other Franco dragon characters do make appearances in the game. I didn't think about that for a moment or did I, did I mention, I don't know. I've been, things have been so crazy in my life. I don't remember what's been going on in my own life in the past three days, let alone say the previous two weeks. But yeah, that's a great, um, little summary of roof pooper. And uh, yeah, the graphics, I really do think the graphics are significant improvement in Roof Pooper from, say, uh, the brawler games. I think they, they're much better. Uh, I, it seems to me that what's happening is that uh, Clark is actually kind of like developing graphical skills as he goes through it. Have you ever seen any of his drawings? They're, he he makes some really good drawings. Now, Eugenio goes on to talk about the E.T. book cart. We all know the movie E.T. and the movie it inspired for the Atari 2600. We've also heard the untrue story about E.T. being the cause of the North American video game crash and of that certain landfill in the town of Alamogordo. Well, think of this cart as a digital book that collects the story of E.T. the game. There are some words of wisdom from E.T. that you can read, but there are interviews with Howard Scott Warshaw and even a trivia quiz. Unlike its 2600 counterpart, though, this cartridge doesn't have a playable game. Nonetheless, it is an interesting read, and an easy one at that. There are no real graphics to speak of. What you will find is pretty much text, and perhaps a small E.T. or other little characters sprinkled here and there. So E.T. Book Cart is pretty much just what the name of it says. A book. If you want nice graphics, just have a look at the cart label, which is colorful and has E.T. holding an open book. Guy Eugenio is so good at saying what takes me like... Thirty to sixty minutes to say in just a couple of sentences. I'm mean, really he should be doing this podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Eugenio, for for your thoughts on the ET book card. Oh, by the way, by the way, when the episode was actually released, my friend Jimmy G messaged me over Facebook, and he said Alamogordo is in New Mexico, and I was like, yeah, I know that, and then I thought, oh crap. Did I say Texas? And I messaged back. I said, oh, please. Did I say Texas? He said, yep. The thing is, I knew it was New Mexico, but I put Texas in my notes. And I think the reason for that is Alamo Gordo has the word Alamo in it. Alamo, Texas. You know, I, that's probably why I made that connection. But, um... I really don't have much more to say about uh, E.T. Bookcar. I said it all the previous episode, and uh, Eugenio nailed it, pretty much. So, uh, moving on to what Eugenio says about Failsafe. In 1982, Atari released an original game for the Atari 5200 called Countermeasure. In that game, the player controls a tank, so you can search for a failsafe code to stop a nuclear disaster. In creating Failsafe for the Atari 7800, Bob DiCrescenzo has created what is, for all intents and purposes, a sequel to that Atari original game. In Failsafe, you control a tank again, and you must cross six different terrains in order to reach a depot where you pick up clues to the Failsafe code. If you survive, you will have to reach the final depot where you must enter the four-digit code in order to prevent a nuclear holocaust. Of course, things are never that simple as you must face various enemies in your search for the code. Jeeps, cruise missiles, gun turrets, pillboxes, and even terrorists will hunt you down. You must destroy them in order to complete your mission. Along the way, there are some tools the U.S. government has left you to assist you. These tools are in packages marked with letters. F for freeze enemies, I for invincibility, S for speed, which is really helpful, and D for distance, to shoot further. Failsafe is a game that is nicely done on the 7800. Unlike in Countermeasure, you cannot rotate your tank's turret, however. This may disappoint players of the original game. The pace of the game is slow, but there are enough enemies that will keep you occupied as you travel through the various terrains. Graphically, there is plenty of detail, and your tank does look rather nice. It is also well animated. Each terrain you must traverse looks different with plenty of color and unique features. You will find that precision is key in this game if you want to beat your enemies, so it is best to have patience instead of simply speeding through. Of course, you can only really speed through it if you get a speed power-up, but even then I don't recommend moving around without some planning. Sound-wise, the game does as well as can be expected using a TIA chip. There's a musical tune on the title screen and the sound effects through the game do the trick well. Overall, this is a unique title in the 7800 that is enjoyable to play and easy to recommend. And uh, there you have it. There's our our thoughts from Eugenio on Failsafe. So thank you for that, Eugenio. And again, what more can I say? I, I really don't have anything creative or intelligent to add to that. Eugenio pretty much said it right there. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. And uh, by the way, there's somebody else who has something to say about the uh, turret. So I turn it over to the next person providing feedback. Uh, Next person, speak up, please. Hi
1: there, Sean Courtney. Um, I have heard about this podcast from another podcast uh, who's also got a host named Sean. Um, Hey, anyway, just wanted to drop a few notes about uh, Failsafe. Uh, You've already done all the background with Failsafe about how it's uh, based on the Atari 5200 game Countermeasure, and Countermeasure was one of my favorite games on the 5200 when I had one years ago, and uh, it is again now that uh, I have controllers on the 5200 that a certain person named Sean traded with me for. So yeah, you've already went over all the details and all that, and I really do like Pac-Man Plus's version of Failsafe, but... And playing Countermeasure again versus Failsafe, Failsafe's got a few things that I think are really missing from the game. I think the biggest missing thing is in Countermeasure, you can turn the turret of your gun with one of the buttons. And this game doesn't have it. I really wish it had that because it would give another uh, burst of strategy, if you will, to the game. Instead, the way it's set up is that you fire in the direction that you are the... Failsafe is a lot harder even on the novice version than uh, countermeasure is on some of the more difficult versions, which is kind of interesting. Um, I do know that you have a lot of more time to go through failsafe than you do countermeasure, so that's a that's definitely a plus. I do miss having the missiles as targets that you can go into at any time to guess the, uh, the failsafe password, because I believe in countermeasure, you could win the game one of two ways, either doing the code, which uh, disables the missiles, or by shooting all of the missiles. Um, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to go have, have to go back and check that. I'm not going to say it. Uh, actually, because I'm pretty sure that's true. But I don't know. I, I, I do like it. Don't get me wrong. But it's just missing those couple things. I do enjoy the power-ups. do like them. I think that adds a nice touch to the game. And I do like that the code is actually longer. It's still not really difficult to memorize. And if you have two or three of the of the uh, the numbers i'm sure you could guess the password but the problem is i can't make it through all six six stages on novice I just can't do it it's it's really hard for me but uh seriously what thing i do want to say though i like the game I like the game I don't own the cartridge i've been playing it on my, my mateos cart along with a few other pac-man plus games but the problem i feel kind of guilty about it and I actually asked him past pac-man plus one time I told him look I feel really guilty about playing some of your games on the Mateos cart without, you know, without actually owning the cartridge. You know, do you have like a, an email address or something I can send you a few bucks through PayPal? And he goes, don't worry about it. The, I, I just want people to play my games. So, uh, you know, he's he's a real nice guy. And uh, sadly, I only own two of his games currently, and that is Frenzy and Scramble. If you want to hear what I think about those versions, you can listen to episode... Uh, one of the back episodes of Pi Factory Podcast. I don't remember what they were. And uh, you'll actually also hear Pac-Man Plus on that episode. You know, I'm gonna look it up real quick here. Um, hold on
0: a second. Ah, here it is. It was
1: episode 33. Episode 33. So you could listen to that one if you want to hear what I think about uh, Scramble and Frenzy for the Atari 7800. So at any rate, Sean, um, I really do enjoy this show. Don't get me wrong. I I, I, we kid, we kid because we're best friends, but, uh, love the show, Sean, and keep it up. And, uh, I'll see you. I'll talk to you, uh, when we record the next episode of Pie Factory. But since this episode of the 7800 podcast isn't going to air until February, I have no idea what episode we're going to talk about yet on Pie Factory. So I guess we'll go from there. But the, the next episode from when I'm recording this will be Gravatar and Bosconian. So tell you when I recorded this, huh? So, all righty. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Jim. That was very kind of you to say. Uh, By the way,
0: the episode that we just recorded uh, that's going to be released soon is uh, we talked about Michael Jackson's Moonwalker and Trivial Pursuit. But I do want to address a few things you mentioned. First of all, what you said about how in countermeasure you can win by destroying all the uh, missiles, I believe, the missile silos. That is also true for Failsafe. And, um, yeah, the, about the turrets, well, I did not know that about, well, again, I don't, I've never played countermeasure, including in preparation for this show, so, uh, yeah, I don't have a 5200, oh, I, I probably could find the, uh, Atari 8-bit version, run it on the, uh, 600XL I have under, under my desk here, oh boy, but hey, uh, you, that does sound fascinating, though, like, uh, rotating your turret individually, Uh, It just sounds like it also opens it up for more failure on the part of the user, making it more challenging. Oh, and you could use like two joysticks on that, perhaps. Oh, and by the way, um, you're not the only person who has commented to me about uh, feeling bad about playing the games and not actually owning them. I mean, think about this. If somebody doesn't want you to play that game with or without the real cartridge, the ROM would not be easily available. If Bob didn't want people to do that, he wouldn't have let the ROMs stay put after the cartridges were released. And really, very few homebrews that were ever released on cartridge are not available as ROMs. Uh, Let me see, I think uh, at least the games that were covered in this podcast, the only ones that I talked about that are not available, at least as authorized by the developer, as downloadable ROMs are Combat 1990 and um Donkey Kong PK but uh, wow that's that makes now two people who've sent audio submissions i do welcome audio submissions in wave or mp3 form or flac if you want or apple lossless and if you don't want to email that to me, but you want me to have some kind of sound, and you just want to upload it to Dropbox or something, I can deal with that as well. Or if you have your own web host, I can also download it that way. But um, that's what we have for feedback. And um, thank you all for taking the time to comment. So episode 30 is... Well, over right now. Thank you all so much for listening. And of course, thank you to the following people who've sponsored this podcast on Patreon. Thank you to Kyle Etter, Grey Defender, Jimmy G, Ed Ladin Controllers, Richard Grounds, and Richard Valdez. Thank you guys so much. And should you like to help out a little bit financially, give a dollar or so a month, you can go to patreon.com slash Homebrew78 on the web, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. In the meantime, if you wish to contact me, there's email, and that's homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And to read the show notes that I always mention, you can go to the web, homebrew78.fab4it.com, and on that site you can also get previous episodes. And fab4it is spelled F A B and then the number four, and then IT. Twitter handle is Homebrew78, YouTube channel is 7800. And coming up next, episode 31, we will be talking about we. Who's we? I'm the only host. I will be talking about the homebrew called Wasp. And uh, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing after that, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I don't have everything planned out yet. I have been putting together the Pac-Man Collection Gigasode for quite a long time. It is not going to be ready. I think what I'll do is I'll start uh, talking about the homebrews that have become forgotten over time, if you will. So, um, and of course there are still plenty more Franco dragon games that need to get some coverage as well. So I'm going to be planning some of those coming soon, but in the meantime, thank you again for listening. Thank you for listening to me ramble for an hour ish, give or take every couple of weeks. And of course, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support that they deserve all the best.